Hello and welcome to Ninja Dialogue, episode number 126. This interview is with Daniel Burris, speaker, strategist, and author of six books, including the New York Times and Wall Street Journal's bestseller, Flash Foresight. Daniel is one of the world's leading futurists on global trends and innovation. He's a premier influencer on LinkedIn, and the New York Times identified him as one of the top three business gurus for speaking. In this interview, we discuss all manner of new tech trends, such as the Internet of Things, the cloud, big data, Moore's Law, and importantly, how companies should be looking at these trends to make business decisions. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. So, welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today, piped in from San Diego, California, on our lovely Skype, Daniel Burris. So, Daniel, tell us who you are, what you're up to, and if you will, what is your mindset? Well, I have got a uh, foresight mindset. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of our life in the future, so I do like to think about it. Even though I enjoy the present, I have to actively shape the future if I want it to be positive. And I, uh, I've, grown, I've started six companies over the years uh, in a variety of fields, and before that I taught biology and physics. So I just mentioned that because I have a research base, but I am also uh, apply what I talk about as an entrepreneur. And uh, for the last 31 years, I've been running Burris Research, and we uh, have come up with a way of separating what I call hard trends from soft trends and work with organizations and companies uh, around the world, uh, helping them to, again, actively shape their future using the methodology that I've developed. One thing's fascinating about your profile, Dan, I mean, of course, you are extremely well-read, top influencer on LinkedIn, and, and you know, got a massive following is that you have a biology as well as physics background. So the sciences have structured your life. It seems in business, the, the place for the humanities, biology, doesn't seem to fit in so well. Do you think that's been one of your strongest advantages going into business, going, you know, when, you, when, you, when you talk in big business? Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the, uh, when I started my first company, uh, which ended up with their 37 national locations in the first year in the United States, uh, you know, I was teaching, I was teaching, which means I never had a business course. So I think that that helped me tremendously because I didn't realize that uh, you couldn't be profitable in the first year, I, which I was. I didn't realize that I needed investors, which I didn't get. So um, as a matter of fact, I've, you know, in all the six companies, I've never had any corporate debt. Uh, because I didn't know I needed it. So I guess I'm saying that it's, uh, it's helped me to come from the sciences and not have that training because it allowed me to do some things I might not have done had I already known how to do it. So um, I, I was going to start off, have fun doing something differently, you know, like innovating even on the fly when we're doing podcasts. And so uh, trying to bring some innovation to my podcast, I wanted to throw up something which I've never done before, which in France is a tradition called the Proust Questionnaire. Of course, it's done in French by a guy called Proust, and uh, who's nothing to do with the author. But um, it's, I'm going to put up a couple of things, and I'd love for you to say which one you go with, and you know, where, which one are you bullish on, or more bullish on? How, how would you like? However, you'd like to choose the favorite. So I'm going to go with, and I'll say, I'll say the two words, and you choose. So the first one: NFC 
or Beacon? How uh, about uh, Beacon? Ello or Facebook? Um, yeah, it, it, Facebook could be interesting. <laughs> Barcode or QR code? Uh, well, both are kind of obsolete, but we'll try the QR code. Google Glass, Apple Watch. Uh, Apple Watch. Share economy or fear economy? Uh, well, you know, the, the share economy is uh, an interesting thing, but we surely have a fear economy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so we'll, uh, it, but these are interesting how you're putting them together. Yeah. Small data or big data? Uh, how about small good data versus uh, big bad data? <laughs> Love it. CES or South by Southwest? Uh, boy, both are interesting. Southwest by Southwest, probably. And Airbnb or Uber? Hmm. Well, you know, they're all interesting. Um, I think Uber is an interesting one. Hmm. $40 billion worth interesting. Well, you know, you've got to ask yourself, why didn't the taxi driver think of that? <laughs> No doubt. Another one of those installed bases that would run by cronies and overrun by mafia of some sort, right? Needed some shaking up. So, Dan, you, you're a predictor, but I thought I'd start with just uh, maybe for, for a lot of people understanding. What, what, how do you view 2014? What, what do you think were the big things that happened in 2014 from your angle? I think that more and more uh, have become... Uh, confident in technologies that are, that are indeed shaping the future. What I mean by that is, um, you know, we've got the uh, buzz around wearables thanks to, uh, you know, that the Apple actually doing a really interesting thing, and that is putting them up and showing them what they've got uh, months before they can even sell it. Mm -hmm. And because Apple is Apple, uh, they can get people uh, to start thinking, wow, this, uh, this may be... This wearing technology may be big. Now, you and I and other people that are have been keeping our eye on the future already know that in many ways we're already there to some extent anyway, and it's going to grow rapidly. But what I really think is that it's awakened a lot of people to it. Now, of course, we've got the bring your own device, what the BYOD they call it, mm -hmm. which kind of uh, messed up the uh, IT departments around the world, uh, you know, in their security and they're trying to keep track of everything. But using uh, the predictable future, we can see that uh, WYOD, wear your own device, is just about to hit. And of course, what I like to do is to predict uh, future problems before they happen and then pre-solve them so you don't have them in the first place. So I think um, they haven't seen the problem yet. Uh, and of course, every problem has an opportunity. But you and I both know that is uh, going to hit them and it's going to start hitting them big uh, next year as Google Glass continues to get smaller and more invisible and more companies do it so that it doesn't look like something unique, but it looks just like a pair of glasses, like the type you were wearing. Yep. Uh, and not to mention the fact that I could make a camera and a microphone so small, my wearable would be invisible. So we're really to an interesting little tipping point uh, starting out as we go into 2015-16. The other thing is on the cloud. Yeah. And it, I think, um, again, I work all over the world with, uh, I tend to work with a C-suite, so it's, you know, CEOs, CIOs, CFOs, and so on, and big, big businesses. And 
you know, about three, four years ago with the cloud, it was like, well, the cloud's not secure. We can't go there. Uh, and today it's, uh, you know, we've got to go there because it's more secure. So I think this has been one of those shifts in seeing that the cloud is actually bringing us more security. I know I was involved in getting uh, the first eGov, which is, of course, Singapore, into the cloud. And it's now more secure than it was before that. And, uh, and, and so it's, you know, it's, it's changes like that, I think, uh, and seeing the cloud as an island, meaning it's all about the cloud instead of realizing now the cloud is an enabler where you can't have virtualization without the cloud. You can't have mobility like we want to do without the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. And realizing that it's a component rather than a separate thing. Mm -hmm. So those insights are finally starting to dribble down beyond the tech people to help them to move forward uh, a little faster. John, when you're in with a C-suite and you're talking about innovation and new technologies, what do you find are the, are the principal concerns and, and preoccupations that are going through the minds of, of the people in front of you? I think the biggest concern is everybody is too busy and you can busy yourself right out of business uh, because we're at a unique inflection point in history and in human history in that matter. And, uh, you know, we have uh, tools today that we're doing things with that were impossible to do just two or three years ago. And of course, as you know, as I look forward, that's even becoming more intense. So being busy, putting out fires, crisis managing, and even trying to be agile, <clears throat> for example, Hewlett Packard just divided in half and the CEO said it's so they could be more agile. And of course, my reaction is, well, that won't help because agility is related to reacting and responding. It doesn't really jump you ahead. So I think that they're trying to react, respond, crisis manage, put out fires, keeps them locked behind. And that uh, one other little element on that is, um, you know, there's something called legacy technology, of mm. course. Uh, so there could be legacy networks, legacy hardware, legacy software in these large organizations. My worry is not legacy hardware and software. My worry is legacy thinking. And I think one of the biggest problems we have is, as I look around the world, we've got much more legacy thinking than we have legacy hardware and software. The thing that I, I, I totally relate, of course, Dan, and my, the, I like to talk about legacy budgets because companies tend to operate at this time of the year where, you know, they're creating the new budget and the way that they construct their budget is entirely based on what happened the, the year before and the year before that. And so, of course, that's just another component of legacy thinking. But it's amazing how it structures. Well, we should increase our spend by X percent. We, we need to increase our revenues by this much. And, and just by basing the way we've been doing business last year, it seems hard to – well, we can't afford to do that, Dan. No, no, no. We don't have money for that. Yeah, and, you know, what's, what I like to help organizations understand is that in today's world of rapid transformation – uh, saying no can be more expensive than saying yes, which is a flip because in the past, if I said yes to you, it meant I had to spend money. If I said no, I didn't have to spend money. Now, if you say no, you can lose your business. So it's really, uh, you know, getting a, an understanding of that. Something else that you brought up, I think, is worth spending a minute or two on, and that is that there's two types of change, basically, um, and the economists, as well as the financial guys, all are experts in only one of the types of change, which is cyclical change. 
So, you know, economists look at cycles and we look at our spending patterns. We look at what we did last year, as you already said. We look at the year before, we look at the year before, we look at the sales. And then we look at those cycles and there are over 300 known cycles that let us get a window on the future. But the reason the economists have been increasingly wrong uh, is because the other kind of change, which was so slow in the past that nobody needed to pay attention to it, now it's changing our world on us on a daily basis. And I call that linear change. Unlike a cyclical change, a linear change, once that happens, you're not going back. In other words, once you get a smartphone, you're not going back to a dumb phone. Uh, once the people in China bike, park their uh, bicycle and get a car, they're not going back to the bike. And those types of linear changes have very predictable consequences as well as opportunities. So we don't have companies that are used to linear change. They're used to cycles, and that's why they're making increasingly bad bets. Hmm. Well, if I could push back for fun. Um, there's, a, there's a notion of replacement, but I mean, if you look at the, the world, let's just take the, the feature phone or the dumb phone, there's still a lot of dumb phones out there. So in the way I look at it, it's more like an and economy or an and cycle as opposed to one replacing the other in a linear fashion. We're layering in and you and you have to do social and you still need to do old fashioned television advertising. Social media or you know Google AdWords has not replaced TV ads. Well, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, uh, in every one of my six books uh, going way back to the 80s, I was talking about when you want to see the future more accurately, you can't think either or. You have to think both and. And that means mainframes are still around today. We're just using them different than we did four months ago, four years ago, or 40 years ago. So in the what I'm getting at here is that it is not necessarily the new technology or the old technology. It's how you integrate the old with the new to create higher value. So the, the uh, use of uh, things like smartphones, which, of course, is a computer, unlike a flip phone, mm -hmm. uh, does put in the hands of a Maasai warrior in Africa uh, something, television, radio, access to your blog, uh, and things that they would have never had before because they can't afford a computer, but now they have one. So, And also, about two years ago, the cost of making a smartphone versus a dumb phone became equal. Of course, we're not talking about an Apple smartphone, uh, but we're talking about you know a general smartphone that has a browser, etc. So those kinds of things create some interesting dynamics, and just like there are people that like to listen to spinning circular albums, as well as CDs, uh, most of us are, uh, have gone uh, another route, but yeah. they're still there. Yeah, the, the return of the vinyl. Um, when, I want to get to, I want to, get to your, the, the, the way you get into your predictive modeling for New Tech in a second, but going back to your boardroom discussions, I'm just curious, to what extent do you spend time talking about cyber criminality and security? You mentioned the cloud. Yeah, <laughs> I talk about it quite a bit. Uh, I have, you know, you can't be an expert on everything. And uh, that is, you know, not a deep expertise of my of me personally. Uh, however, you know, obviously, we cover that. And we uh, have, you know, very high level discussions with that. Uh, for example, just this last week, I was with the uh, leader, the head of cybersecurity for the United States, uh, talking about that, using the methodology. So obviously, I get into that. But um, it is, an, as you know, 
you never win the game. It's a war that will be constantly uh, fought because, you know, the, the bad guys uh, will do something, we react. I think the key is getting ahead of it and not always be reacting, but getting into predict and prevent rather than react and respond. And I think there is the shift around cybersecurity. Another thing is using uh, new next-gen uh, biometrics. So uh, like with the Apple phone and, uh, you know, you can put your finger on there. Um, you know, actually the phone has got uh, facial recognition capabilities, voice recognition, all sorts of things already built into it that we could have multiple biometrics uh, giving us some amazing capabilities, especially when you get into not just the fingerprint pattern, but the blood vessel pattern under the skin just by putting it on the next-gen screen. So there's uh, a lot of interesting things that can be done in terms of new tools and new techniques, but the bad guys are still there. Yeah, like uh, that technology, I think it's from Mexico, Cidesi, that looks at the way people are walking and, and acting and the head movement, the eye, well, so via CCTV. And they're trying to predict where they can see crime about to happen or rioting about to happen. That's oh, yeah. It's a really, uh, all this stuff is extremely interesting. And as you know, there is a plus and a minus to everything. So one of the things that I think is important for our listeners is that when something good happens, realize something bad happened at the same time. Take a look at both. And by the way, when something bad happens, take a look at what good that just happened because something good just happened as well. Hmm. So we have the yin and the yang, the up and the down, the plus and the minus, the good and the bad, the heaven and the hell, all exist simultaneously. It's a good idea to be aware of it all. Love it. So, Dan, let's talk about your your approach to predict your predictive approach for new technology and how you help companies work with innovation. Tell us, walk us through the the, the methodology. Yeah, well, basically, what I've done, done, and this is based on thirty years of uh, research and work, is uh, separated what I call again hard trends, and those are the things that will happen, guaranteed, hundred percent. And by the way, if you don't like them, too bad. <laughs> from Soft trends. Those are the things that look good in the present, but they might happen. And when you make that distinction, it is a very powerful tool because uh, it might you might think at first, well, I don't like soft trends, which would be very wrong, because soft trends <clears throat> you can change. So if uh, if you don't like it, you can change it. You have some power over that. Um, hard trends you can't change. They're going to happen anyway. So the uh, but it's good to know about those because that every disruption that has ever hit was uh, very predictable and right there in front of us. Let's face it, uh, back uh, in the uh, late 80s and, uh, and even throughout the 80s, did someone say to Kodak and to Polaroid, hey, hey, let's not tell those guys about digital. Let's keep that a secret. And, of course, the answer is, well, no. Now, obviously, it was a hard trend. Unfortunately, they didn't know the difference between hard and soft trends. They treated it as what I would call a soft trend. Oops, mistake. So it's good to be able to separate those hard trends from soft trends. So soft trends are based on assumptions. Hard trends are based on future facts. Very interesting. And there's more than one type of assumption. Uh, for, their, for example, some assumptions are not well-researched. Others are making it uh, a different way to manage the risk of the soft trend. The hard trend is really creating what I would call a certainty. And actually one of the things I've pioneered is what I call the science of certainty. 
So in an uncertain world, which we surely live in, you have to ask yourself, what are you certain about? Because strategy based on uncertainty has high risk. Strategy based on certainty has low risk. So it really, what I've been doing with my hard and soft trend methodology is changing how people manage risk and how people plan for risk uh, around those things. That's great. Uh, and just yeah. are all have are all hard have all hard trends been soft trends beforehand? No, they were hard trends right from the beginning. Uh, they don't change. They don't morph. A uh, uh, now remember I mentioned. You know, the, the cyclical change and linear change. Uh -huh. Now, in that case, linear changes, which are not cycles, are one way. They can change cycles. So linear changes can affect and can influence and change cycles. But, um, you know, what, let me give you an example of a, uh, a hard trend. Uh, you know, there's uh, in the United States, there's 78 million baby boomers. They're not going to get younger. It's a hard trend. Hey, they're getting older. They've been doing it for decades. They just keep getting older. So, um, you know, there's a lot that we can see and a lot that we can know, and there's a lot of opportunities around that particular hard trend, especially when you look at the hard trends of technology, which allow us to increasingly, uh, let's talk about wearables, uh, put sensors that are decreasing in price in a predictable way uh, every year, giving us more and more capabilities. So, for example, why don't we create a smartwatch? using my methodology. Well, you would be competing with Apple. You'd be competing, competing with Samsung, Microsoft, and all these companies. How would you do it? Mm -hmm. But if we use the hard trend of, let's say, demographics in the aging populations, and by the way, do I know which countries have aging populations and which countries don't? And the sure. answer is yes, with certainty. So what if we created a watch for 70-year-olds and older? And, of course, the people buying the watch is not the 70-year-old. It's the caregiver of the 70-year-old and older who's buying the watch. And what would that watch have on it? Well, you could have sensors on it without piercing the skin that detect oxygen level of the blood, blood pressure, pulse, temperature, all sorts of things. By the way, because of the accelerometer, you could tell if they fell or not because it would be a rapid movement with a sudden thud. And oh, and if they have Alzheimer's, uh, you know, you would know where they are at any time. So if grandpa or grandma's lost, it's like, oh, I can see exactly where they are. Let's go pick them up. My point is, is that you could create a winning smartwatch <clears throat> using the low-risk hard trends of demographics and some of the hard trends of where technology is going and do amazing. So really, uh, we do help companies innovate using both the hard and soft trends. So is, is Moore's Law a hard trend? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's been around. I've, I've been tracking it since uh, for 31 years now. And uh, and having worked uh, recently, met with uh, people from, again, CEO levels from Intel, Cisco, and companies like that, we realized, uh, you know, it's got a long way to go because here's an interesting thing. I talked to a technology guy at a big company, and he said to me, this is about two months ago, uh, Moore's Law can't continue. It's too expensive to build the, the billions of dollars of facilities to continue with Moore's Law. And my response was, well, if we achieved Moore's Law in the way that we have in the past, you would be correct. We're just going to achieve it in some new ways. And then started talking about some of the new ways. And all of a sudden he realized, oh, yeah, that's right. I was looking at the past to see the future. Oops. <laughs> 
Dan, when, when you are talking with business uh, leaders and you talk with some of the most prestigious, most innovative companies in the world, how do you get, how do you get excited about the Internet of Things? What, what's your approach for making them understand the opportunities? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up uh, because I think it's probably one of the biggest uh, hard trends that will uh, that is still unknown and people don't really get it. And I think there's confusion. Um, but uh, so it's exciting to help to bring that uh, to life with uh, executive teams and companies around the world and help them to see that. For example, uh, there's already confusion around what's called M2M, machine-to-machine communication, versus the Internet of Things. I was just with a Fortune 10 company that was uh, saying that machine-to-machine uh, uh, -machine is uh, the same as the Internet of Things. It's the same thing, which, of course, it's not. What I mean by that is, now to get into a little more detail, uh, having machines talk to machines, either wired or wireless, is part of the Internet of Things, but a sensor embedded in cement that is detecting whether the cement in the bridge is cracking or that there's ice on a bridge when you're driving in a cold climate, a sensor is not a machine. So the Internet of Things is a combination of machine-to-machine -machine as well as sensors, embedded sensors that are networked. Um, so, you know, it's really just trying to get an understanding of what it is and then what can be done? <clears throat> for example, I'm in California. We do a lot of growing of crops here for the entire United States and other parts of the world. And there's been a lot of drought and there's a lot of irrigation. And right now the irrigation systems are stupid. They're dumb systems. So we just water everything at the same time. But there is a new sensor uh, that is biodegradable. You can put it in a field and wirelessly communicate moisture levels to now an intelligent irrigation system so that instead of irrigating all of those hundreds of thousands of acres, you can just put water on the part that needs the water the most, which, of course, saves water, saves money. Well, you know, that was impossible about a year ago, two years ago, but it's not today. So part of it is looking at, you know, how the Internet of Things changes things dramatically as Moore's Law. And by the way, there's bandwidth storage. I call them the, um, the three uh, change accelerators. So Moore's Law is only one of the three. Uh, and what are the other two? Are, 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 are bringing us uh, forward at this rapid, predictable pace. What are the other two? Uh, again, I identified those back in, in uh, 1983, and that is uh, uh, bandwidth and storage. So the law of bandwidth, law of storage goes along with Moore's Law. My mistake back in 1983, and I say this with tongue-in-cheek, uh, with a smile on my face, is I did not have the foresight to call them the Burris Law of Storage and the Burris Law of Bandwidth. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, I've been sharing it uh, around the world in my books and my articles and so on. So what it does is it, it tracks uh, the predictability of the growth of bandwidth and the growth of storage. So um, when you add the three together, you get some amazing things. So those are the three big predictable drivers of change and... Uh, and so let's just think, uh, why didn't we have uh, YouTube in the year 2000? Well, it wasn't just Moore's Law. We didn't have bandwidth. We didn't have storage either. Uh, why didn't we have TED Talks? Why didn't we have Netflix? Well, you know, those things weren't ready yet. 
uh, even if you could think, uh, let's say that Apple had the iPhone ready to go in the year 2000. Well, you know, too bad. We don't have bandwidth storage and processing power ready for it. Now we do. So if we look two years, three years, four years out at the predictability of those three things, you can start seeing low risk opportunities because it's based on hard trends. And you can also start seeing the future more clearly with time frames. So you really need three. One, just Moore's Law is not good enough. Mm, beautiful. I love that. So, um, Dan, um, a last question for you before we close. What are some of Dan Burris's personal fetish new technologies that you're playing with or really excited uh, to enjoy uh, using? Well, I, uh, boy, I like a, a lot of things. I mean, you know, just to kind of give you a little crazy insight, uh, I had uh, real robots in my home back in 83. It had uh, computers built into it. Of course, they were not very intelligent computers, but, uh, you know, the robot could plug itself in. It had a barcode reader on its gripper, so it could tell if it was a Coke or a Pepsi. Uh, it could Love speak. That. Now, this is 1983. I, I think my wife bought me a... a a drone uh, for Christmas in 2010. So, you know, I, I have kind of a bizarre uh, <laughs> personal interest, as you, as you can no tell. Uh, but, uh, but I am extremely excited, obviously, about the Internet of Things and what we can do with that because it's so transformative. Uh, one of the uh, smaller things that is still very big is what we're calling additive manufacturing or 3D printing. Um, it is so amazing what can be done in terms of, uh, you know, healthcare. Uh, for example, if you needed an artificial knee instead of getting one off the shelf that's close, we can use titanium and print one for you. But think about shoes. Nobody's shoes ever fit. But now we've got companies like Adidas starting to do 3D printing of shoes designed just for you. So if you really look at, uh, you know, those are just a couple that excite me, but it's hard for me to make it a small list because I get excited about all this stuff. Isn't that great? Um, you know, so, uh, Dan, how can, uh, how can people find a little bit more about you, track you, listen to what you're up to? What are the best ways? Well, as you mentioned, I'm one of the uh, top influencers on uh, LinkedIn. So you could, uh, you know, follow me there. I write, uh, you know, at least one article a week and sometimes two. Um, that get very big readings. I, I have uh, 4 million readers of my blog. You can go to Burris, B-U-R-R-U-S dot com, find it there, uh, along, along with a lot of other resources for you. Um, I put, I, in my 30th publication of a trends report I'll be putting out uh, for 2015 coming up shortly, that would be something you could find on Burris. Uh, you know, I've got 100,000 on Twitter and so on, so you could go to Twitter, but I think your biggest place to find a lot of resources is burris.com and my last book uh, flash foresight which is in many languages uh, has been a bestseller new york times wall street journal it's been a bestseller in china so flash foresight might be a good place to go as well well fabulous dan uh, just love chatting with you it's been a pleasure to have you on thank you for your insights uh, for spending your time with us and uh, look forward to staying in touch my pleasure thank you Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. 
How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. 
Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.